Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to hear from your word, to learn from your word, to capture the vision of your word. Father, we know that this word has come to us from heaven. It is the highest word, and it requires our greatest attention. So, Father, I pray that you would remove from us any distractions, make our hearts and our minds ready to receive your word. Father, help me, as the vessel of your word this morning, to preach with clarity, to preach with truth, to preach with beauty what is here. Father, may it not be my word, but your word alone. So purify me today. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. The title of today's sermon is A Vision of Heaven. Because I think as we look at the Lord's Prayer, which is the beginning of a series that we're having, we see most clearly, first and foremost, a vision of heaven. But before we get into all of that, I want to ask you, when you hear the word heaven, what connotations, what images come to your mind? Do you think about heaven often? Or is heaven something that you're reminded of only from time to time? How much of your time, as you look at your uh, weekly ledger, gets consumed with the thought of heaven? How much of the decisions that you make day to day have the idea of heaven behind them? When do we think about heaven? I think it is important to ask those questions because as a person in this culture with you, I am finding we spend less and less time thinking about heaven. There are many reasons why heaven has kind of fallen to the margins. First of all, we see heaven is is an idea that is ridiculed by many in the world, both outside and inside the church. Heaven... Heaven is pie in the sky. Unrealistic, crazy idealism. It's for, it's for dreamers who aren't really doers. We've all heard the snarky comment, that person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And we recoil. Well, that, I don't want to be that heavenly minded then because I want to be of some purpose. When heaven does get talked about, often it's treated like, a, like an adult fairy tale. It's, it's brought up at funerals as this final assurance, regardless of, of who that person was, they're in a better place now. It's vague, but they're in a better place now. We think of the old spiritual, all fly away. We think of heaven as this place that we escape to from these prison walls I'll fly, I'll fly away. 
And so we think of heaven as some abstraction, something away from us, something that we go to when all the trials of this world come to an end. And when we picture heaven, when we see the ideas of heaven, what do we, what do we see? We see these immaculate golf courses and a rosy paradise and big family reunions. It's a Disney World experience that we offer to people. And that's, that's beautiful. But as we think about those pictures of heaven, there's always something surprising about them. There's no God in those pictures. And I, I will confess, if heaven is full of golf courses, I'm going to be worried I went, ended up in the wrong place. <laughs> Personally, golf would not be my picture of heaven. But we see all of these ideas of heaven. It's, it's being put down. It's being parodied. And yet, we can't give up the idea of heaven. Heaven is essential to being a Christian. If we do not have a clear grasp, a clear vision of heaven, then we cannot possibly wage our war against secularism. Secularism is simply the idea that there is nothing sacred. There is only this. And if there is only this, then we are in a battle of one moral set versus another. But if there is a heaven, then we are in a battle of two different views of reality. If we don't have a view of heaven, we have already lost the war. We need heaven to be people who live with hope in this world. Because there is a flood of disaster. There is a flood of sin and confusion. And only the vision of heaven fixes our hope that a better day, a better reality exists. Finally, a vision of heaven is essential to understanding our role in this world. Who are we as Christians? How do we live in this world as Christians? The only way we can do that is to grasp what it means that we are citizens of heaven. That is why we want to spend this time looking at the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer serves this purpose of helping us see clearly a vision of heaven. And we see that in the very center of this prayer, in that small little phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, as it is. The Lord Jesus gave us this prayer. He gave us these petitions, these things to pray for. And in reality, what he is giving us is a picture of heaven. And we see that in these words, as it is. Because Jesus is saying, there is a place where it already is what this prayer prays for it to be. As it is in heaven, ongoing right now in the present, these petitions are fulfilled, are coming to the fullness in heaven. And so the Lord's Prayer really gives us six glimpses of heaven for us to grasp and for us to form our present reality around. The reason that we have created this graphic is to, is to show you that it is through the Lord's Prayer and through faith in the giver of the Lord's Prayer that we are able to see clearly the real reality. Because if we do not see the reality of as it is in heaven, then the reality 
of, of this world and its disasters and its abuses and its sinfulness, then that becomes what defines us, what shapes us. But the Lord's Prayer gives us a vision of what it really is, of what reality actually is. Because what the reality is in heaven becomes the ultimate reality for all things. You see that in, in how this petition or this, this phrase is put together, on earth as it is in heaven. The whole idea of the Lord's Prayer is to deny the idea of, I'll fly away. It is instead to say that the Christian hope is not evacuation of this earth, but reclamation of every corner of this space for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so if we have a vision of heaven, we have a vision for the world to come, and we see more clearly our place in it. So as we go through this prayer, I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer in total to see these six glimpses of heaven. My hope for us is to let the Lord's Prayer fix us on the reality of heaven, to learn what it means to hope for heaven, and then to see what our role is on earth as citizens of heaven. And so if you have in your bulletin uh, a little handout, you can follow along with this sermon as we look at these six glimpses into heaven from the Lord's Prayer. The first thing Jesus taught us to pray, pray in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in this petition, we come across the first glimpse of heaven. And that is this. It is the beauty of holiness. The Lord's Prayer gives us a glimpse at the beauty of holiness. When we say, hallowed be your name, we are saying, God, be esteemed as most holy. Be sanctified in this world. Be set apart as holy. Well, what is holiness? Holiness really deals with two different concepts that are related. The first thing that holiness is about is set apart, set apartness, specialness, or sanctity. The second thing that holiness is about is ethical purity. Holiness is the absence of sin and defilement. Holiness is unapproachably high and set apart and pure. The, the Apostle John puts these images together when he, he refers to the idea of light. First John in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 5, says, it this, says this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The idea of light has both aspects, the set-apartness. Light, his light is so strong, it is unapproachable. And his light is so pure, there is no darkness, in fact, no place for darkness to be found in it. And so holiness is this idea of this purity, of this perfection, of this set-apartness of God. What do we find, though, when we look at the earth? Do we find the beauty of holiness on earth? No. We see holiness pilloried. We see holiness mocked. A couple years ago when the tragedy of the Charlie Hebdo attacks uh, came about, and those were horrible 
acts of violence and reprehensible, we ended up having a side discussion about these arcane laws that are on the books in all of these European countries called blasphemy laws. And the mindset of everybody that was speaking on blasphemy laws was how ridiculous that we have blasphemy laws. Freedom of speech should have absolutely no limitation. There shouldn't be anything that we cannot speak against, that we cannot mock. And so the whole idea of a blasphemy law became ridiculed. But does that not show us what has happened in this world? If there is nothing that we feel shouldn't be mocked or, 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 or ridiculed, we are saying there is nothing sacred. The name of God, the holiness of God, we would rather stain it than hold it as holy. That is a glimpse of the way the world looks at holiness. But we also see holiness profaned. A couple of years ago, I got to make a visit to the Holy Land, to, to Israel, and see all these different sites uh, where Jesus walked and, and different places where events in the Bible happened. And here's what I can tell you. If there is any confidence that something Jesus did happened somewhere in the Holy Land, it has been made disgusting. It has been shellacked or, 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 or with, with uh, gold and jewels and rubies and, and trinkets and all sorts of just gunk just packed on and all of these strange religious expressions and garb that is just, that just thrown around And the idea of these holy sites is that as man tries to make them more and more beautiful, they become more and more just gross and tacky and profane. So we don't see holiness there very often. And then whenever we see it among other people, we see a parodied version of it. We are all familiar with the person who is holier than thou, the holy roller. The person who has all the don'ts, don't drink, don't smoke, don't vote Democrat, whatever it is. And the whole idea is, if that's holiness, I don't want anything to do with it. It's gross, it's a parody, it's a mockery. You see, holiness just doesn't have a place here on earth. And this, the reason for that is made clear by Jesus himself in the Gospel of John who said this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. You see, the reason that holiness is pilloried or profaned or parodied in this world is because holiness offends and exposes our unholiness. And so the world is in a, in a conspiracy to get rid of all evidence of holiness so that what we do may be done in the darkness and celebrated. There is no room for the light. But this is not as it is in heaven. In heaven, Psalm 29 says that God is worshipped in the beauty of holiness. You see, God's holiness is not something 
that gets pilloried or profaned or parodied. God's holiness is something that in heaven is fully beautiful, that has splendor and glory and elicits all kind of awe. We go to the book of Revelation and we see this description of what heaven is like. Revelation 21, 23 says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false." In heaven, we have this beautiful picture of God's holy light covering everything. So perfect is his holy light, there is no darkness. There is no shadow. And the people who are there are filled with worship at the beauty of his holiness. God's holiness is supremely beautiful and draws ceaseless worship. We find the absence of anything impure. We find in heaven a picture of holiness that is beautiful. We also see this picture of beauty and holiness in Jesus. You might recall the the event in all of the Gospels where the night before Jesus is crucified, a woman, who we don't exactly know her name, comes to the presence of Jesus, is so filled with awe and love and delight and who Jesus is, that she grabs this jar of expensive ointment, of expensive perfume that probably cost her a year or more. It was probably the heirloom of the house. That one nice thing that this household had. And she was so moved by the presence of Jesus, by the, the beauty of Jesus, that she says, I have to adorn him with beauty. And she grabs this bottle of of perfume and she breaks it open and she spills it all over his head. And the room is filled with this beautiful aroma of this ointment or this, this, this perfume so that the whole room is being filled with the intoxicating smell of the beauty of Christ's holiness. And what happens when that happens? Snark. Ridicule. Why would you waste this? You could have given that to the poor, the disciples say. And Jesus stops them and responds, she has done a beautiful thing. You see, what the nard expressed was what the reality of Jesus was. He was there, he was holy, and he was beautiful. And the beauty of holiness was seen in Jesus by that woman. So that's our first glimpse of heaven, the beauty of holiness. The second glimpse that we have is the reign of righteousness where we pray, your kingdom come. What is the kingdom? It's where God rules in all righteousness. But what do we see when we look at the earth around us? Do we see righteousness? No, we see a world that is broken. We see injustice and immorality running rampant. We see corruption of even the good things. We see favoritism ruining even the most well-intended laws. We see our hopes continually dashed as we say, well, maybe this person 
has the plan that will fix everything. Maybe this person has the agenda that will put all things right. And it's only months later we're like, let's have another election. This didn't work out. We have had this cycle from the beginning of time. Our hopes are constantly dashed because there is nobody who has ever brought the reign of righteousness to our doorstep. But it's not just the world that we are in the midst of. We recognize that we also are broken. Do we love our neighbor as ourself? Every single one of us lives a little bit better than our neighbor for a reason. We don't exactly love them as ourself. We like the differentiation of our life against our neighbor. There is only so much that we will expend ourselves for our neighbor. And yet when Jesus summarizes the law, he says, righteousness is this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what doing right is. And yet every single one of us hedge and limit and define more narrowly who our neighbor is so that that demand goes less and less far in our lives. Do we see our own planks? Every single one of us are fixated on the specks of unrighteousness in this world. We could give you a long list of what's wrong. How can everything be in this, the world be wrong, but we remain right in our own eyes? That is the definition of unrighteousness, that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Everything is wrong, but no one is to blame. But as it is in heaven, we see something far different. Listen to this description from Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Righteousness is established in heaven. There is no favoritism. There is no corruption. There is no law that fails to accomplish the good. There is no lack of love for the neighbor. And we see in heaven that God will separate the unrighteous from the righteous. Only the righteous will behold his face. So in heaven, righteousness reigns. But where do we find this picture more, most complete? We find it in Jesus. When we think of the story of Jesus at the temple, he came in and he cleansed it of the money changers. And he said, this shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus brought judgment upon the temple because rather than it being a place of worship, a place where the reign of righteousness emanated out through the corners of the world, it had become a place that was a cover for lawbreakers. People had used the temple, had used the temple rites as a way to justify their sins, to cover over their law-breaking, and to use it as a place for them to hoard. And so Jesus shows the reign of righteousness by bringing his judgment upon the place where righteousness was supposed to reign, and didn't. The Lord's Prayer also shows us a glimpse of heaven in the third petition, your will be done, where it it basically describes to us this third glimpse, the joy of obedience. The joy of obedience is what we will find 
in heaven where thy will is done. The joy of obedience. Joy and obedience. Do those come together in this world very often? Happiness and obedience are often pitted against each other. We are in this week remembering the loss of Hugh Hefner, a pornographer, and the number of people who are lamenting his life and missing him in the news and giving tribute to him shows us exactly the point. We do not find our happiness in what God says do. Our world is geared to find its happiness in what God says don't. The the lie that Eve fell for in the garden was simply this, that God's rule is a killjoy. If you obey God's, God's law, you won't be happy. You won't be as full as you want to be. You will not be like God. We find in the book of Proverbs this word spoken from folly saying stolen water is sweet. Stolen water is sweet. And we have to ask ourselves, why do I spend a moment wondering about that water? What is it in my heart that says, well, what does that water taste like? Is that stolen water better? Does it become better because it's forbidden? We all recognize in our heart there is something about rules and joy that we struggle to put together. There is some area where we wish we could disobey because sin says there will be joy there. And if we look at all the sins that we have committed, it is because we thought if we transgressed this line, we would have the happiness that we want. But on earth, but on heaven, we see something completely different. As it is in heaven, we see described in Psalm 103, verses 19 and and on, we are told, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and the kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. In all the places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. We see in heaven a place where obedience and joy are brought together. There is rich blessing, rich delight, unending joy and celebration among all the hosts of heaven, not because they are violating God's will, but because they are living and fulfilling God's will. They are experiencing a joy in their obedience. I think it is interesting that the only time I can, I can really recall the angels being told, given, given emotions is in the parable of the lost coin. Jesus says that when this lost coin is found, there is much rejoicing. And he uses this as an example of what's going on in heaven. Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are filled with joy when repentance, when turning from sin and turning towards obedience happens on earth. That brings joy of obedience. 
And so we see in heaven obedience and joy coming together, the fulfillment. But we also see the disobedient and the unrepentant having absolutely no place in heaven. Those who do not find their joy in obedience, those who do not repent of their disobedience, there isn't a single square inch of heaven that is for them. The people in heaven, the, those who possess and live in heaven are those who have experienced the joy of obedience, who have fulfilled your will be done. We see this, again, pictured most perfectly in Jesus. What motivated Jesus' obedience to the cross? The most horrendous sacrifice, the most agonizing experience, the hardest command that any person has ever been given was take the cross and die for my people. And yet we find that Jesus went through that excruciating ordeal for this reason. Hebrews tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus saw the horrendous cross and all of the the despair of that torturous device. But he saw that on the other end of that was the joy of heaven, was the joy of the fellowship of his Father. And what does he say? I will endure this obedience. I will go through this because the joy of heaven, the joy of obedience so far outstrips the agony of the cross that I will do it. Our picture of obedience and joy have been severed by a great lie. If the joy of heaven is so far magnificent that the agony of the cross leaves no comparison then how great must the joy of obedience in heaven be? So we have seen these first three glimpses, the beauty of holiness, the reign of righteousness, the joy of obedience. We turn now to the second part of the Lord's Prayer with the words, give us this day our daily bread, and we see the fourth glimpse of heaven, which is the freedom from every anxiety. The freedom from every anxiety. In this world, we are filled with anxiety, are we not? We have anxiety about the illness that we have. We have anxiety about the illness that we're going to get. We have needs in every direction, and they multiply as our lives only get more and more filled with luxury. Now I worry about Wi-Fi passwords. The more luxury that we have, the more worries and needs we have. We never stop worrying, do we? We go to bed worried about the next day. We wake up in the morning worried about yesterday. Scarcity always haunts us. Do we have enough? Even in Walt Disney World, We run around worried. Do we have our fast passes? Do we have our reservations? Are we going to get everything done on time? 
and we're, we're torn in knots because we've spent so much money. We've got our kids for this one occasion. This is our one chance. And we're worried almost to the point of not enjoying it in Disney World. We are creatures of anxiety. We all are living in a rat race propelled by the question, do I have enough? And the answer is always, no, you need a little more. Then you will have enough. And why is this? Why are we so consumed with trying to find enough? It is because we are always pursuing our own independence. We are trying to shed ourselves from the dependence of God and find ourselves self-sufficient. And that is a folly that races us into greater and greater anxiety. Not only do we find that we have anxieties, but we find in this world gross disparity. The world produces enough food for two and a half billion more people than live on it. And yet, there are one billion people right now who have never had the absence of hunger, who are in chronic hunger. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. We are not even able to share the enoughness that we have. We are filled with disparity. But in heaven there is freedom from every anxiety. As it is in heaven, we get this glimpse from the book of Revelation chapter 7 where we are told, therefore they are before the throne of God, these who have have been redeemed from the earth, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In heaven, there is no lack. There is no emptiness. There is no want. There is no anxiety. There is no loss. Where do we find this pictured better than in Jesus? Who when he saw a myriad of people, who had no time to get home and had no food in their midst, had compassion on them and said, we need to give them something to eat. And in Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, we find a picture of the freedom from every anxiety. These people did not have to worry about listening and following Jesus because he met their needs and met them to the point of excess, that there were basketfuls of food left over. We find pictured in Jesus this freedom from every anxiety. Fifth, the fifth glimpse we see in this this cry for forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who are indebted to us is we see in heaven the fullness of peace and fellowship. You see, where forgiveness has full effect, peace and fellowship are restored. Now, when we look at the world, is there any question that peace and fellowship are not as they should be. We cannot 
watch the news without seeing division and schisms and rivalries and animosity and factions and racism and war. We cannot look at our own lives and not see family conflicts, unreconciled relationships, and unforgiveness. Our life on this earth does not testify to peace and fellowship. In fact, to say, let there be peace, is something we just kind of laugh at now. What a ridiculous idea. Never gonna happen. But that is not what we find in heaven. In heaven, these words are true. Around the throne of God, Revelation 5, 9 says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you, made, uh, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ in his death has ransomed and redeemed people from all corners, all races, all tribes, all families, so that they can worship together with no conflict, in perfect peace and fellowship at the throne of the Lamb. Again, we find this most pictured in Jesus at the Lord's table, which we were about to celebrate. On the night that Jesus was about to be arrested, on the day before he was to go to the cross, it was his delight to have this Passover meal with his disciples. He reclined at table around this, this band of brothers, and he shared this meal. And this was the last moment in Jesus' life where he was able to experience peace and fellowship. And the reason this was the last moment that he could experience peace and fellowship is because the call upon him from his father to go to the cross was upon him and had to be fulfilled. And why does he leave the Lord's table? But so that he can enjoy this meal again in his kingdom in heaven. He laid down his life. He gave up the peace of his life. He gave up the fellowship of his brothers and his friends to endure the ridicule and isolation of the cross that by his death he could secure for eternity a fellowship of peace with people from all nations. Christ is the glimpse of heaven, the fullness of peace and fellowship. And sixth, we see in heaven the triumph over all evil. I don't have to tell you how much evil there is in this world. I don't need to tell you that, that there is temptation in this world. But I can tell you that in heaven, we find all evil has been thrown down. In heaven, all evil and temptation is overcome. In heaven, people are secure from any danger, any harm to them by any source of evil. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said, it is finished, all the powers of evil were evacuated and thrown down. And they are crushed. We see this most pictured in, in Jesus, where we are told in Hebrews chapter 2, that he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery 
because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus destroyed the power of Satan by destroying the power of death. He is the picture of heaven brought to earth. So as we conclude, these six glimpses of heaven show us that heaven is a place that is beautiful, that is righteous, that is filled with joyful obedience, that is free of anxiety, conflict, and evil, and any evil. As we step back to consider the grandness of this vision, we need to reflect on three takeaways. First, the Lord's Prayer shows us we cannot get ourselves to heaven. If heaven is a place of holiness and righteousness, perfect obedience and peace, do we belong there? That perfection would end the moment we came into that place. These glimpses of heaven quickly become warnings of judgment. The Lord's Prayer is like hearing the news that the house is finally having an exterminator come to get rid of all the termites, only to be reminded, you're a termite. The cold hard truth of the Lord's Prayer is this, you don't qualify for heaven. You would ruin it. But this leads us to the second takeaway. Just as the Lord's Prayer shows us our utter hopelessness in ourselves, it also points us to the one who fulfills all the hopes of heaven. The Lord's Prayer shows us heaven has come to us. This is not just the prayer Christ taught. This is the prayer Christ fulfills. Christ is the vision of heaven. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him and we become heirs of the kingdom and citizens of heaven with him. The good news is that in Christ we become citizens of heaven. In Christ we receive the hope of the Lord's prayer. As it is in heaven, it is for you in Christ. Have you trusted in Christ? Finally, our third takeaway. When we are united to Christ, the Lord's prayer also becomes our vision. We must be people who pray for and live for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. These six glimpses of heaven need to become increasingly seen in our lives. In short, we must be people who live in the vision of Jesus. And it is making sense of what that looks like that we will be talking about about in the following weeks. So let me end with this. Are you captured by his vision for it to be on earth as it is in heaven? Amen.